0: And I'm still shocked that not more people are disturbed by population growth. And I think it's because, as a species, we've decided not to talk about it, to kind of tuck it away. So
1: I'm here to untuck it.
2: Those words were spoken back in 2012 at a TEDx talk by our guest, actress and activist Alexandra Paul.
1: Music to my ears.
2: Yeah, mine too. We'll do some serious untucking next on the Overpopulation Podcast. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, the podcast that can't wait to be obsolete when the scale of the human enterprise has contracted back to a level that's in sustainable balance with nature. Then you won't need us. I'm your co-host, Dave Gardner.
1: And I'm Nandata Bajaj, co-host and executive director of World Population Balance. An organization that boldly takes a stand on why human overpopulation is devastating our planet and the many positive ways in which we can help address it.
2: You can learn more about sustainable population at worldpopulationbalance.org. In this episode, we're going to visit with a smart, bold pioneer in the sustainable population movement. But a couple of little things first. One is my voice. How do I sound today? Is my voice coming back?
1: It sounds a lot better, Dave.
2: Better than it did the day that we had our chat with Alexandra Paul, which we're about to share with our listeners. On that day, it was a little bit weak. I'm just recovering from emergency surgery. So I just wanted you to understand why it didn't sound like the usual Dave Gardner. Uh, The other thing uh, before we get down to it with Alexandra Paul is, shall we check the inbox? Let's do it. Okay, okay. Well, we've had really several emails congratulating you, Nandita Bajaj, for your new post as Executive Director of World Population Balance. I'm excited about that. And I would share them all if uh, we were doing a three-hour podcast, but we're trying not to do that. So let me just share one from Ruth. Hello, Nandita I just wanted to say how happy I was to learn that you are the new executive director of World Population Balance. I've been listening to the podcasts with Dave Gardner for about five months and look forward to each one. They and the organization are like a buoy in a stormy sea for me. Your manner of presentation, eloquence, and thoughtful perspective on the topics are superb and so appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do, and I look forward to hearing more of you in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much for your kind remarks, Ruth. And Dave, another response that is giving a shout out to both of us. I love that when it happens.
2: Yeah, that was pretty cool. And she must be a writer too. I mean, that was pretty, those were a lot of good words in that email.
1: Very beautifully written. And thank you, Ruth, for the vote of confidence. I'm so excited about taking on this leadership position.
2: Ditto. So thanks a lot for writing to us. As always, if you have any feedback or if there's a topic you would like us to address on the podcast, just send an email to podcast at worldpopulationbalance.org.
1: Alexandra Paul, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: I have to say, I am very excited about this. This has been way too long in coming. So thanks for spending a little time with us today.
0: Well, I'm a fan, so I'm honored to be on.
2: Well, I guess it's a mutual admiration society. And we don't usually fawn all over the people that we uh, interview, but we might fawn a little bit today.
1: (laughs) You say that to all the interviewees days. (laughs) I'm proof he doesn't.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. Kind of refreshing my memory a little bit earlier this week, uh, you had mentioned somewhere that, that you had done some pretty early work on population. And in fact, didn't you get some kind of an award from the United Nations in 1997?
0: I, in the early 90s, 1991 or two, I took three months off work to just speak to schools around L.A. on human overpopulation with my friend, Professor David Abramis. And so he had a lot of knowledge on how to teach, and I had a lot of passion about the issue. And together, we had a presentation that we presented to high schools and middle schools, actually, around L.A. Back then, you had to write postcards or call teachers in different schools to just say, could we please come speak? Because there was no Internet. So it it was labor intensive, but we did get a lot of yeses, please come. Teachers are often happy to, you know, not have to teach and be able to sit back and watch somebody else teach a subject. So we did that and ended up speaking to uh, 6,000 students around L.A., both in classrooms and auditoriums. Uh, So that was in the early 90s. And then the United Nations flew me out to, I think it was New York, with Isai Morales, another actor who's involved with the environment and... We spoke and then gave us an award for doing good work. I wish I had the award. And actually, when I looked it up, I couldn't find the, the, what the award was or anything. So, but anyway, it, you can find on the internet that we were there, we spoke, and we were allowed to be there.
2: <laughs> so, it's a good sign that narcissism isn't one of your primary character traits.
0: <laughs> I don't keep my awards. Uh, I have a friend who's so mad at me because I use some of them, a couple of them as doorstops, but other than that, <laughs>
2: yeah. So that's interesting that that was right about the time that uh, Dave Paxson was founding World Population Balance and he was doing talks uh, early on. So you two were kind of on parallel paths back then.
0: I didn't know him though, unfortunately. I didn't know, uh, I was a member of the West Side chapter of ZPG at the time and that's how I got involved with the issue more more and found my friend David Abramas to speak to schools with.
2: Well, you you first hit my radar screen when your TEDx talk came out, which I think you did that talk in Topanga, California in 2012. And uh, those of us who were uh, in the sustainable population movement, were we were all just thrilled because you articulated the issue so well. And of course, TED talks uh, get a lot of virality. They get spread around quite a bit. So you, were, uh, you became a, an instant hero to us. Or is there something between the 90s and 2012 that is really noteworthy that we ought to chat about?
0: Well, I was involved with a lot of environmental issues because I came to the issue of human overpopulation from an environmental standpoint at first. And I actually, in the 80s, left a lot of groups that I, I was involved with because they wouldn't deal with the human overpopulation issue. Mm-hmm. They were mostly focused on recycling, which I had not been doing for years. My mother had been doing, so it just didn't seem like enough. And so I was happy to be able to do uh, not only Speak in Schools with David Abramis, but also I co-produced and hosted an educational film that was directed by Michael Tobias, who is just amazing on this this issue with yeah. a book called World War Three that has a lot of amazing information. And he directed it, and it was called Jam Packed, and it was for schools because there was no educational film on the issue available in schools around America except for like a five-minute cartoon. And mm-hmm. so we produced a half-an-hour film about it for kids in high school.
2: And that went on to be become even bigger than Reefer Madness, I believe. <laughs>
0: I I wish.
2: (laughs) Is it possible for people to find that film?
0: I don't think you can find it now. And it's also very much, it's not hip. You wouldn't, kids wouldn't relate to it now. So uh, someone else needs to do another one for schools. Everybody out there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Could be Nendida, could be Nendida.
1: That's right. Yes, in partnership with Alexandra.
2: <laughs> that would be too cool. Because I have to say, I, was, I really loved that film that you did or that series for high school students about overconsumption.
0: Well, that was a sequel to Jam Packed, actually, with Michael Tobias, same team, Jeff Holland and, and Greg Molina, the four of us, uh, wrote, produced and directed, hosted that together
1: and and what kind of reception at the time did you receive from the students and the teachers on the film? Well, you know,
0: the film—I didn't really know where it went, but I do know that when in the '90s when we were speaking in schools, we received a really positive reception. And I remember years later, I being in the airport buying a, a, a magazine before getting on a plane, mm-hmm. and the young woman. Behind the counter said, You came to my school and spoke on overpopulation. (laughs) I was like, Yay! So I reached somebody, she remembered. (laughs) So that was kind of neat. Oh, and then I was standing in line also in a yogurt shop, and a person right behind me said, Excuse me, you spoke at my school about water. And we did this thing about water, and I can't even remember exactly what it was, but obviously they came away with. This was years later, maybe 10 years after speaking at their school. So I was just happy that they remembered something that it was an environmental thing maybe, but so I know I touched at least two people and they <laughs> seemed to be fine with it. But no, seriously, when I speak about human overpopulation, I have not gotten any backlash and we mm-hmm. we did not get backlash when we spoke in schools either. I think the youngest grade we spoke to was second grade actually. We changed a little bit, but we did not get backlash. And it might have been also that because of the internet, parents weren't knowing exactly everything that went on in schools. But I mean, because there was no internet. Parents were. How was your school? Your day to day? Oh, fine. You know, it wasn't on the internet. It was harder to find out what was going on.
2: Right. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about. Did it get tucked away after those experiences? Did something change between the early and mid nineties and two thousand twelve? Or has your experience been pretty rock solid that no one's ever? given you any pushback about talking about the subject?
0: Well, I did do a a presentation on Earth Day a few years ago at Pierce College, and I went into the bathroom afterwards, and I heard a lady complaining about the fact that I was telling people not to have kids, which is not true at all. I never tell people not to have kids. I don't believe that's a very good way to get something done. It's better just to tell them the ramifications of having too many kids or um, more than two children and... Let them decide. Mm -hmm. So she didn't, I don't think she saw me in the bathroom, so she didn't (laughs) confront me. I would have just told her the same thing I just told you. And then, yes, I was um, recently asked to speak at a college, and the students, without talking to me or knowing anything about my presentation, just knowing that it was called something like Human Overpopulation and Overview, that they wanted to cancel my talk because they felt that it was racist to discuss this issue. Wow.
2: They assumed that.
0: They assumed that. And I had a meeting with them, uh, with some of them, because I wanted to answer any of their questions and see if they would put me back on, maybe reschedule me again. I was irritated because I I believe that they could definitely... Not agree with me, but the fact that they'd never spoken to me or (laughs) didn't even know about what I was going to be speaking about and canceled it, insisted on it being canceled, that was irksome. And I wanted to have a discussion. So when I spoke with them, it was so interesting how uneducated they were on the issue. And one young woman said, well, if you talk about population, people won't talk about consumption, and and that's not a good thing. And I said, well, wait, why can't we talk about more than one thing, mm-hmm. more than one issue? We can hold these two, and they, they are very much entwined. And she also had the misconception that the population was going down, and I had to tell her birth rates might be going down, but population is actually going up. Mm-hmm. So happy ending um, after our very civil discussion, they said, yes, okay, you can present. So we rescheduled it and it all went fine. Nobody um, was offended. in the question and answer period, not a single person. So.
2: Well, that's a success story. Congratulations.
0: In fact, Nandita, you were at that present, the second presentation. I don't I know was, if you knew yeah. that, that was the uh, presentation that had been canceled.
1: I did not know that because I, I didn't have any backstory around the presentation. I was just so excited to see someone You know, being able to get into a university to do a presentation on the topic because there is so much resistance. And Dave, might you have any idea why students think that our population is declining? Could it have anything to do with baby bust alarmism in the news a lot lately?
2: 10 or 20 times a day only.
0: (laughs) Right. And also it's a complicated issue. People, and I'm sure journalists get it wrong too. Well, they do get it wrong because they'll say the rate is slowing, but then they'll infer that the population is already declining, which is Mm -hmm. not a truism at all. Yeah. So it can be complicated if you really, you have to be very careful with how you phrase the situation.
2: One of the missions of this podcast is to really improve overpopulation illiteracy, to help everyone around the world become more knowledgeable about the subject. And thank you for being a a fellow uh, professor in that endeavor. And and in fact, uh, this might be a good segue to talking a little bit about your TEDx talk. It's just amazing to me when I went back and watched it again the other day for the first time in years— how you were really remarkably on message with exactly what World Population Balance has been talking about today. I think you were ahead of at least that one organization and ahead of of my thinking in terms of what needs to be said. How can we best communicate about this?
0: Well, thank you. I think it was Dave. I might have met him around that time, actually, Dave Paxson. And he told me that people, including population organizations, were not using the word overpopulation. Mm-hmm. And I almost fell off my chair. I was so shocked. And now I have, a, I have a broader view after speaking with a lot of people. I still use the word overpopulation. But I have more understanding of the sensitivity around the issue. I think the big difference between me and the organizations is I don't charge anybody to speak. I don't have any donors. I don't really care if people don't agree with me because I believe that I'm correct. I won't be censored by my job by speaking out like this. So I can use the word overpopulation, but maybe other organizations feel like they can't. What what do you two think?
1: well our uh, podcast is called the overpopulation podcast so we're definitely not shying away from using the word I'll let Dave speak to his history and his adoption of the word but I I believe the world is overpopulated if the ideal number for humanity to exist coexist in harmony with all of the other life forms is about two billion or three billion then, we're overpopulated by about five billion. And it doesn't mean that there are redundant people who shouldn't be here uh, when we use that word. For us, at least for me, not acknowledging the fact that we are grossly over the number that we should be is you know, not educating about where we should be heading. And to the billions of animals that are being displaced, we are definitely overpopulated. In their eyes.
2: Yeah, and you said yourself in that TEDx talk that you believed that human population needed to get down from seven billion at that time back to about two billion as a sustainable number. And uh, so many people, way too many people today, are just blissfully unaware of how deep into overshoot we are today. And so they do tend to think that if well, population growth is a is a problem, but that's I hear that's coming to an end, so I can relax. And what attracted me to uh, Dave Paxton and World Population Balance uh, years ago, actually when I was making my film Growth Busters, was the fact that David felt it was really important to use the word so that people understood stabilizing population might be one little step in getting back into sustainable balance, but it's not enough. So people needed to really understand that we're in population overshoot and uh, we can't just end growth. But I know there are some... uh, authors, uh, experts, uh, and environmental organizations, a few who do talk about the subject, but they have chosen not to use the word because for some reason they think that the use of that word does somehow imply somebody has to be eliminated from the planet tomorrow.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, which is so odd because we're exactly the opposite of that. We're trying to make sure that people don't die and suffer by lowering the population in a humane, steady thoughtful way before it becomes too late
2: exactly exactly that's right so what was it was there anything that was happening in 2010 2011 2012 that inspired you to prepare this TEDx talk I'm sure you put a lot of work into it it wasn't something you decided to do and a week later you were on stage
0: well actually well 2011 I think it was October we we got to 7 billion yeah I did that TEDx late 2011 I think and it was really because somebody asked me to do a talk. And so I said yes, and then did the talk, and then created it. So I didn't create it, and then, as far as I remember, that's how it went. So it was sort of, I rose to the occasion. Huh. <laughs> I think that's, that's what it was.
2: That was the most important subject to you. If you were gonna get on stage and talk about something, that was the one, right, I guess?
0: Yes, for sure. I've been involved with a lot of different issues. But in my late 40s, I decided that I was going to focus on animal rights and human overpopulation because those were the two issues that were sort of more fringe, that people were less comfortable with. And I, I thought that I, being a middle-class white woman in a career that doesn't excoriate you for speaking out without you know needing donors or caring what people thought, that that's where I needed to put myself instead of raising money for children's hospitals, for example,
1: mm.
0: which I can't do anyway for because of re, it goes to animal research. <laughs> but <laughs> so. right.
1: okay. Did you face any resistance from the organizers when you proposed uh, the talk?
0: No, not at all. You know what I find is that most people do think that there are too many people on yeah. the planet. They just don't like to delve any deeper. They see a lot of traffic and they they understand it, I think, in a very deep way. But then there's this other part of them that doesn't want their rights taken away, and they immediately jump to China or India. I really wonder where our issue would be today if China and India hadn't sort of ruined our reputation.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: people jump to that immediately. They don't even know the actually the ins and outs of it. They just know there was oppression.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: So... It, yeah, it'd be an interesting thought um, exercise if that hadn't happened. Would our issue be more mainstream and be more accepted mm. and not so feared?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, good point. So, was it scary at all to you? Did you have any apprehension about choosing that topic and going with it?
0: No, not at all. After all, I had been speaking about it in schools in the 10 year or 20 years earlier, gosh, 20 years earlier, and I had gotten involved. I think one of the reasons that you know my involvement with the issue was not consistent. In other words, I haven't spent the last 30 years only focused on human overpopulation. And part of that was because there just aren't a lot of people out there working on the issue with whom I've interfaced. And so I got involved with the electric car movement and really moved that forward. Mm-hmm. And when, when electric cars became mainstream, I, I knew I didn't—they didn't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I, I focused on animals and overpopulation again. So I have been, yeah, guilty of not being incredibly consistent in terms of my activism. And then recently uh, on this issue. Last year, I wrote to some colleges and asked if I could speak, and I did hear back from one, the San Diego State University, and I'll be speaking, actually, to another class there tomorrow. Great. So, you know, and I'm thinking, actually, and speaking with you now makes it more real of hiring someone to help me just do all that work of outreach, because I think I could probably find an intern or somebody whom I could pay, and I'd be able to afford somebody who could just do outreach and to maybe get me booked so that I can speak. Because that's that's the hard thing is trying to get in. I have spoken to Scripps University of Oceanography. Is it called a university? College of Oceanography. Uh, they have a climate change class. Mm. Uh, you can actually get a degree in science and climate change policy. And so I've spoken to their class three consecutive years. Uh, so I didn't shock them.
2: Well, that's great. I
1: found your presentation that you did for San Diego University to be so accessible. I felt it was just really well done. And I just even wanted to ask you, in the nine years since you've given the TED Talk, your messaging was still very bold and on point, but have you evolved how you we're talking about overpopulation then versus now. Now,
0: the TED Talk was only nine minutes, and the presentation I gave, for example, to Scripps is an hour and a half. <laughs> so it's different, but now it's, it's about one child per couple. It's really, I used to speak in the early 90s, certainly about two kids or fewer. Hmm. And now it's really about having one child, getting people comfortable with the, with the notion of single children, only children. I know I spoke about that in, in the um, TED Talk, but now there's no equivocating because now we're we're hitting $8 billion since that TED Talk.
2: Well, I want to interject real quick that we will put links in the show notes to as many things that we talk about as we can. Definitely, we'll put a link in the show notes to this TEDx talk and Alexandra's talk at San Diego State University. I think that's available to the public. We'll put a link because I didn't get a chance to see it because I had something more important to do. I needed to recycle that day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know everything I'm saying anyway, you know. So I think I'm, I'm learning from Nandita about pronatalism though. I wasn't that aware of that concept. I mean, I knew there was a push because I'm a woman and I've had people push me to have babies and be scornful that I haven't, but I'm learning from Nandita about pronatalism more. So I'm happy about that. That's certainly broadening my perspective and also being more from uh, the organization, having kids, which will soon be fair start. I'm Mm. also recognizing other ways to look at the issue rather than the way I look at it, which is from an environmental point of view and quality of life for humans. Like there's other ways to show people that population is a problem and that, We can solve it. And I think uh, Fair Start does that.
2: Yeah, they're pretty impressive in that department. So let's listen to a moment from your introduction at that TEDx talk.
0: A couple days later, I told my friend Susie Hollander that because there seemed to be too many people in the world for it to handle, that I wasn't going to have any kids. And she looked at me and she replied that she was going to have three. And I felt pretty alone in my beliefs. And 37 years later, I still feel pretty alone in my beliefs, and I'm still shocked that not more people are disturbed by population growth. And I think it's because, as a species, we've decided not to talk about it, to kind of tuck it away. So I'm here to untuck it. I can hear how nervous I was in my voice. (laughs) Only you,
2: only you. You really were really I think you 've carried yourself better than ninety nine percent of the TEDx talkers out there, but thank you for untucking it. I just love that notion that you 're there to untuck it.
0: I do believe and thank you for having this podcast because it 's all part of the fabric of all of us moving to try and untuck what people refuse to speak about, and so they stay with these notions that those university students did that people who want to lower the population or even stabilize it or talk about having fewer kids are racist, classist, et cetera, when actually we're the opposite of that, because a world of 11 billion is going to be really terrible for the folks who are in countries where they're less developed or the rich countries are going to fare better, in other words.
2: And the privileged people, yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, a lot of the uh, European and North Americans were going to be feeling it later.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. I think we both are. In that, you know, overpopulation is a social justice issue. It is hurting the most marginalized communities now, and it's going to hurt the most marginalized communities increasingly as our population continues to grow and we continue to grow the number of climate refugees that are being harmed by these, you know, disastrous events.
2: So you told the story that you felt alone as a child, and 37 years later, not much had changed. Now, another eight years or so later, do you feel just as alone, or do you feel like you have a little more company today than you did?
0: Well, I have more company because I've met people like you, But the world, I think, is still, judging from the response in the media after the 2020 census and all the articles that are coming out now about how the population is declining, which isn't true, but the population birth rate is declining and how terrible that is. um, They do. Everyone, the media is hysterical. And I've only seen one or two, I think I've seen, I've read three articles that I had to seek out, um, that say there's an upside to having a smaller population, if it were getting smaller. Um, three three
2: out of hundreds.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Um, hundreds on the subject, only three had that perspective at all.
0: And none of them but one in Business Insider. The other two were blogs. So the New York Times, the LA Times, the, the, all these newspapers are printing many articles in the last few weeks that all give you this feeling when you finish them that, oh my gosh, we really need to have more people. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we're going to be in trouble. Um, did you read the one in the New York times on Sunday? Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
2: that was a heartbreaker. Yeah. Uh,
0: it was a heartbreaker. They were trying to make people who read it heartbroken about all the people, the empty, this, and the, the empty houses And I'm thinking, you know, that in some places like L.A. and San Francisco, it's so expensive. There's so many people wanting housing that it's super expensive. And here you are. And one hand, we're complaining about the expense of too many people um, trying to get too few houses in these cities. And on the Mm -hmm. other hand, we're lamenting empty houses. It's like, well, we need to discuss this so we can come to a happy medium.
2: Yeah, the dissonance is just... Deafening. Uh, so that the New York Times piece was called Long Slide Looms for World Population with Sweeping Ramifications. We'll include a link in the show notes. And it was mostly uh, heartbreaking, but you know, there wasn't one bit in there that gave me a little bit of hope. Uh, there you was mean a, the
0: one sentence? Yes. The one, but there was one little, or maybe two sentences, right? Yeah. Because right. I wrote a letter, by the way, and noted that they only had. One sense that acknowledged climate change or something,
2: <laughs> but German demographer uh, Frank Swietojny, which I know I'm not pronouncing correctly, German's a tough language. Chief of population trends and analysis for the United Nations until last year, he he's quoted in the piece saying, "Countries need to learn to live with and adapt to decline." Now, decline is kind of a poor choice of words, but you know right. that is the mantra for this century: is countries do need to learn to live with and adapt to population contraction. It's going to Mm -hmm. happen, hopefully sooner than later. And we just need to adjust.
0: It's going to happen. And we hope that it happens in a way because as that women and couples choose to have it happen instead of it happening because of a pandemic sweeping through overcrowded cities or wars happening over resources or famines due to climate change that can't support this larger population.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that Business Insider piece, the declining American birth rate, could actually be good for the economy. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for that too. And uh,
1: It was, you know, a relatively positive article, the first of its kind that I've seen in a while.
0: It did acknowledge that the fact that the birth rates are going down is because of women's rights are going up mm-hmm. and education is going up. Now, the other articles actually have acknowledged that and I have been impressed that the mainstream media does get the link between women's rights and them they're choosing to have smaller babies, which makes it all the more confounding that these outlets and journalists would want women to go backwards into, you know, having more children, which unless they think, oh, well, don't worry, those women can have a full-time job and four children. Mm -hmm. Totally fine. Because that's what they're basically suggesting that we should do. Right.
2: I think those other pieces sort of, they recognize it, but they sort of, it's almost presented as, well, here's the cause of the problem. End of story. And this piece in Business Insider, you know, really kind of celebrated more that it's about women having access to education and employment opportunities, uh, about the rise in individualism, the rise in women's autonomy and a change in values. It was It's more celebrated in this piece than any of the others I've seen. Yes. Um, and it seems to me like even the pieces that talk about the fact that, well, this may be the new normal and we do need to start working on adjusting. Uh, and you see someone with kind of a good attitude about that. And yet there's still some Pro-growth bias inherent in that because they uh, they're trying to figure out one is well we got to figure out a way for the economy to keep growing while this happens well why is that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know perpetual economic growth is just as unsustainable as perpetual population growth and the only reason you might need economic growth is to meet the needs of a growing population so population contracts then the economy can contract and it's a win-win and uh, I haven't seen anybody who really kind of completes the circle on that but even if they recognize that there's some benefits for uh, sustainability and you know the livability of the planet and the survival of of us and other species when they start talking about the adjustments they go back to ways to make it possible for women to work and have kids they don't talk about adjustments to the economy so it isn't so dependent on perpetual growth.
0: Right. So you're talking about sort of Biden's plan of helping with childcare and things, yeah. yeah. I think if we look back at ourselves in 50 years, we'll just be appalled at our priorities now because we haven't been like this for our millennia. I don't know when the economics, capitalism and this drive and this priority of capitalism came along. Did any of you have a background in that?
2: Pretty marginal. I mean, you could say 300 years ago, or 200 years ago, or even really intensely 100 years ago. And some people think maybe 10,000 years ago, but not 100,000 years ago, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it came about when capitalism got unleashed by fossil fuels.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. we got
2: carried away. Yeah. But thank you. Alexandra, for uh, for writing to the New York Times and and writing to the L.A. Times and and doing that kind of thing,
0: I feel like a crazy woman because they make me so mad, and I'm just writing and, but it feels good because at least you you know what even if they don't get printed it doesn't matter it shows that people care about the issue and want to see another side Mm -hmm. so. I feel like I'm doing I'm very much believer in the power of one, even on a planet of 7.8 billion.
2: Good for you. So um, most recently, you wrote to the LA Times after they published uh, an editorial, Declining U.S. Birth Rate Adds Urgency to the Need for Smart Immigration Reform. And uh, I was really thrilled to see that they published three letters that were all quite intelligent and articulate, taking them to task for wanting continued population growth instead of celebrating the rights of nature and the... Uh, having a livable planet for future generations. And so you're not a crazy lady. It's pretty clear you're not. And they must recognize that.
0: (laughs) I guess so, yes. And good news is that the LA Times actually published also the day before a letter on the issue because they'd written another article just a couple days before that had the same discussion about U.S. census-lowering and oh, my God, we're all going to be doomed. So it's four letters in two days for the values that the three of us share, which is great that they acknowledge that. They didn't print a letter, as far as I know, saying, yay, populations should be going up. So thank you for your article mm-hmm. telling us that. They didn't print any of those. So
2: You know, there was something in that L.A. Times editorial that troubled me a little bit. I'd really love to get both of you as uh the superior gender, I'd like to get your opinion on this. We men have been in charge way too long and we have failed miserably, so I'm looking forward to more and more women being in charge as we go forward. So there's this one part of the editorial where they wrote, younger women reported in one survey that they were delaying or opting not to have children because they wanted more personal freedom and leisure time, did not have a partner with whom they wanted to share a child, or worried about the affordability of childcare. Notably, deciding not to have children or not to have as many often means more success in careers for women, a patently unfair trade-off. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is? Is yeah. that an uh, is it unfair? Wow. But that that there's that trade-off. As a society, do we need to find a way to make it so women don't have to choose between the two?
0: I mean, I personally I would agree with that statement and say that I chose not to adopt partly because I wanted to continue my acting career and not because adoption is an option for those of us who have decided not to have kids because of overpopulation. But because I knew, even though my husband is very progressive, I didn't trust that we wouldn't fall into roles, not because of him, but because of me and guilt and just feeling like as a woman, I should be a certain way, whereas a husband or the male partner doesn't have that same kind of pressure. So I think that we need to change the, uh, well, it is changing, but slowly the uh, gender roles it's one of the great things about when gay couples have kids they have to discuss things like gender roles you know traditional gender roles and who's going to take on what Mm -hmm. instead of hetero couples like I am I'm in a hetero relationship we don't just we don't we didn't discuss it we just threw our we've been together 25 years we've sorted it out Mm -hmm. Um, but we didn't discuss it in the beginning right
2: but do you have a right to have a superstar career and four kids if you want? Is that your oh, right?
0: I see. That's
2: kind of oh. my question.
0: Oh, I see. Sorry. Nandita, what would you like to answer that?
1: I'm so glad, Dave, that you picked up that tiny little nuance that that they're trying to throw in there of still trying to make it seem like a trade-off, a sacrifice. There's something wrong with you if you can't have it all. It's so Inherently pronatalist in its language, saying that this is ultimately what all women must want. And the fact that climate change is pushing people to not do it, or rising cost of living, you know, wanting to have freedom, all of those things are excellent reasons. But the fact that it's being presented as a sacrifice that women are having to make, definitely not the place that I'm coming from. My husband and I, we did choose to not have children to address overpopulation, but also because we really did not see children in our lives. We consider ourselves as complete families. We have an adopted companion animal. And I'm finding that there's a necessity to move away from this kind of pronatalist culture that defines family, you know, as a unit that consists of children or a family that must consist of a couple. It's something I, you know, even spoke about in the last podcast is the word family has evolved in such a dramatic way that people don't refer to this, you know, more kind of heteronormative structure of a nuclear family with two kids as a family. So I find it problematic when it's presented as a sacrifice I would like to live in a world where the child-free choice is celebrated, as a valid option, not as a sacrifice, not as a lack, but as a valid option for women to make that choice completely autonomously and to not be considered selfish for it. Well said.
2: Well, Alexandra, you're right. Adoption is certainly a potential equalizer because it it is a little bit unfair that if a couple wants to conceive a child, that the heavy lifting falls to the woman, that they haven't figured out a way to make us men carry a child to term. Adoption really does free a couple to get completely outside of those traditional roles if they want to.
0: But it doesn't for the pregnancy, but it doesn't after the adoption, there's still the negotiation between the man and the woman about raising the child. And what I see is that even with progressive men, Mostly, the woman is the default. If uh, given a choice between the man having to give up something to go pick up the child from school and the woman, it's generally the woman's, for example, her work that will be put second and expected. She she will make that that run to pick up the
1: kid. True. That's kind of what that that sentence that you picked up, Dave, was suggesting too, right? It didn't say that about men. It said that specifically about women, that they're going to have this trade-off of, Not being able to have it all.
2: Yeah, they're not thinking completely outside the box there, are they?
0: And I think, like I said, one of the reasons that I chose not to have children is that I don't think that I would fall into those expectations and gender expectations and that my career would suffer. You never see a male actor wondering if having kids is going to stifle his career. I mean, I've never, but female actresses, they do. They have to take time off from work or slow down or work just in town just so they can take care of their kids.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, here's another uh, notable moment from your talk that I'd like to share.
0: And this is where people start getting nervous talking about overpopulation and population issues because they're scared that I'm going to take away their rights to have children. But I don't want to take people's rights away. I want to give people rights. Forcing people to have fewer children does not work. In fact, the fastest and most efficient way to stabilize the world population is to send girls to school and to empower women, and to give everyone access to and education on birth control. And those are good things. And as a culture, we need to emphasize the benefits of having a one-child family so people will choose to have fewer kids. I noticed that I said stabilizing the population instead of lowering it. But I think I do say in that talk, which I haven't heard in a long time, that 2 billion people is the optimum. And yeah. by the way, Nandita, some people believe it's 1.5 billion. So uh, that it's – I was actually being conservative when I <laughs> right. <said> 2 billion. <laughs> but the thing that's crazy is that all these newspaper articles – They're talking about, oh, population decline and 2 billion was just 90 years ago. And my mom, that means that my mom grew up in a world of 2 billion and she was happy. I mean, there were a lot of human injustices in that world, but in terms of environment, it was much better than it is today.
2: But you didn't have a flat screen TV.
0: She didn't. And the economy, the GDP was just not humming along, Dave, <laughs> as much as they, they want.
2: You know, so since, you know, we've added almost a billion people since you spoke those words and mm-hmm. maybe 500 more people understand. If you're talking about overpopulation, you're not trying to tell many people how many children they can have. Uh, I hope I'm being conservative in that.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that TED Talk, it hasn't gotten a ton of, I mean, it's been 10 years. So it's gotten about 500,000 or half a million views, which, you know, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, probably if I'd done it on, you know, the sex life of an Instagram user, it would have gotten 500 million. Mm -hmm. But I'm grateful for the people who have watched it. And I believe that the way I present it is convincing. It might wear off. But because there's so many pronatalists, as Nandita has said, pronatalist assumptions in our society that just my uh, 10 minute TED talk might not sway them, but hopefully it opened them up. And what we need is more messaging, like I said in there, so that people aren't so inundated with this idea that if you are childless, you're going to be less happy. I say the word child, I consider myself child-free, but sometimes I don't say it around parents because I think it sounds like I'm going, I'm child-free, which I am doing that actually, but it makes them feel bad because they are child-burdened. And when I say that, I mean, it's hard to raise a child, but our society refuses to talk about it. It wasn't until Brooke Shields had wrote her book about a postpartum depression that I think people began to understand, oh, postpartum depression happens to almost every woman. Hmm. It's not unusual. It doesn't mean you're broken, but that's because society wasn't making that a conversation we could have because they were so afraid that then the aura of motherhood would would be tarnished. Right. And I guess maybe, right, Nandita?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, such, such great points. And to your point too, it's like we don't talk to people about the feelings of regret that they feel after becoming parents, that's such a taboo subject. You're demonized for even expressing that view to, to say, I feel, you know, I've sacrificed my career, or I've sacrificed my relationship with my partner or my freedom to follow through on a life passion. You're not allowed to say that because automatically people equate that with you somehow being a bad parent. But you could be an incredible parent and still feel a sense of regret, just like you would with so many other decisions in your lives. So there is such a taboo around looking at parenthood as anything but the hallmark of happiness and fulfillment. And, you know, that's where I'm so grateful for the work you are doing and normalizing the child-free choice and cutting through a lot of these pronatalist Believes that not having kids is not fulfilling and, and extremely satisfying and allows you to contribute to society in other incredible ways. Parenting is one incredible way, non parenting is another incredible way. They don't have to compete with each other.
0: Yeah, it's very antiquated for us to continue to think that we have to have more children to survive. And I think I say this in the TED talk is that actually to survive, we have to have no children or fewer children at least. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: That was a good point.
0: But our biology is very much pushing us and old ways of thinking, like the more people we have, the stronger we are as a country, when really in terms of war, we don't do hand-to-hand combat anymore. We don't need a large army. No country does anymore. So that's not a factor. Our tribe doesn't need to be bigger in size than the other tribe to be happier, more powerful, or whatever metric's society values as success.
2: There's another aspect of overpopulation awareness in action where I really feel you were a thought leader back in 2011. Uh, Let's go back to your TEDx talk.
0: Now, you might be thinking, okay, this population issue sounds troublesome, but we should be having the babies. We're smart and we're educated and we listen to TED talks and we can afford kids. And heck, our offspring, they, they might save the world. Even my mom says, oh, Alexandra, you'd be such a good mother. And your kids, they'd be wonderful. And they might be wonderful. But they would also be wasteful. Because North Americans use 32 times the resources as someone from a developing country. So it's even more important that we have smaller families. Well, by the way, my mother um, has no grandchildren. My brother had a vasectomy when he was 21 and my sister doesn't have children either. So she used to be sad about that, but now she sees that we have much more time for her mm-hmm. because we can go up and help her. And when she needs us, for example, when she really needs us, she's holy, she's 85 and very independent, but when she does need us, I can leave and take care of her. Now, partly that's the nature of my job, but also I don't have children, which really keeps parents not able to travel to take care of their own parents. So where did you think that I was hitting on a, tell me what what struck you, Dave, as a point that was important in in that?
2: Well, it was that you were bringing up that, you know, why we in the overdeveloped world need to be thinking about this, because so many people to this day assume that if you're advocating doing something about overpopulation, while well, you're advocating for someone over there to be doing something different, because we're not having that many babies here in the overdeveloped world, but you've made a good point of bringing up that subject. And I think that addresses some of the fear you know, that sort of keeps people from having the conversation because they're afraid that it is has these racist overtones, that we're not looking in the mirror.
0: And it's important that we don't have those racist overtones because it's a very valid point that the, I think it, I came to this sensitivity because the United Nations had a, a big meeting and I don't remember what it was, an environmental meeting in sometime in the 90s. And the less developed countries really pushed back on any kind of population work by the developed countries because they were saying, "Hey, developed countries, this is when we were starting to, just starting to understand about climate change. You all are doing so much damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what happened, unfortunately, was that the conversation got really watered down then because nobody wanted to offend anybody. And Mm -hmm. I think they did talk about women and women's rights, but they didn't really get to the whole conversation because population is really complicated. It's not just about women. Women are a really important part of it, but everybody's involved. Mm -hmm. All those men and their sperm, they're involved too. And all countries have different responsibilities, So unfortunately, yeah, that's what happened to the conversation was everyone wanted to make sure they weren't racist, which I spend a lot of time thinking about that, too, and wanting to make sure that I'm not racist as a white American. And uh, what happened was, is that the conversation stopped. Mm.
2: Cairo, 1994. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you did a good job of, uh, you know, Unfortunately, that fear is there, that sensitivity is there, so it's just that much more important that the way you communicate about this subject makes it really clear. And a lot of people wonder why, well, why does World Population Balance do uh, billboards in North America? Why aren't you Mm -hmm. guys putting up billboards in Africa?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, there's a lot of work for people in North America to be doing.
1: That's right. That's very right, yes. Yes. Yeah, and it's so good that you um, bring up, Alexandra, the complexities of overpopulation too and our need to really educate within our own sphere of influence because there are so many different pressures that people experience to have kids. Pronatalism shows up in so many different ways. It can be religion. It can be patriarchy. It can be what's considered the norm. And so the one message kind of doesn't fit everyone And that's why it's so important that we do acknowledge that world population does need to go down and that we have a role to play in educating people, you know, within our own sphere of influence here, but also supporting efforts in the most appropriate way possible in developing countries where women and men and people are being oppressed you know to not talk about overpopulation in developing countries i think is also unjust because we then assume that people want to be exactly that way and we shouldn't be pointing fingers but people aren't living great lives in that kind of a way and while it may not be our place to suggest how to do that it's important not to assume that it's it's here or there i mean it really overpopulation is a global issue And I'm really glad that we are focusing our messaging here where we understand the culture, you know, of of North America for the most part.
0: Showing the benefits of a small family, I think, helps everybody. Yeah. uh, No matter what country you are in. And of course, as America goes, the rest of the world does want to follow. So if we have this ethic, then it'll be easier to spread uh, around the world and it'll be unique to each area. I had somebody when I spoke, I think it was at L.A. College. This was a long time ago, and a man in the back stood up and said, I'm Armenian, and my people, there was a genocide. I feel like I should be able to have as many children as I want because my people were killed, and that, and that is true. There was a terrible genocide. that mm-hmm. killed a lot of Armenians. And I said, I am a white middle-class American, I cannot talk to you about that because that's your experience. So for me it's to start telling you, well, you shouldn't have to. I'm so far away from that experience, but I will say that the kind of tribalism that we have, which is my people mm-hmm. versus your people, is contributing to a lot of population problems in the world. And yeah. that maybe if we start looking at the fact that people, even if there are fewer of them, they don't have to get back to what they were in terms of numbers necessarily. I'm, I'm sure actually that because the Armenian genocide happened, I think it was in the 20s. But why are we thinking about human numbers? Why not quality of life? Mm-hmm. Why do we always go to that? Well, we've got to have as many people as we used to have. It's such an interesting human... Thing Maybe the healthier thing for all societies is not a, thinking about human numbers, but thinking about the quality of life of each of those humans and what each of those humans have. And I wish that all Armenians will have the beautiful life that they maybe had before, if that feels that they don't have it now. But I don't think just getting up to more numbers is the answer. Mm-hmm. It is hard when you're me and you're a dominant group to a, it gives me the insulation to talk about this issue mm-hmm. because I have white privilege. But on the other hand, it also means that I just I can't tell everybody how I think they should go. I can only talk about the issue as a whole. It's one of the reasons I don't actually know a lot about U.S. facts and figures because I look at the world population as a whole. So numbers in the U.S., are not as important to me as the mindset in the U S yeah. that we have. It's a really complicated issue, this issue, because it deals with the just basic humanity. Yeah. What, what do you all think about that? I mean, not to you, you are not a white American, so <laughs> you, you have a different point of view about how maybe you can, you speak about this.
1: I mean, I've, I grew up in India until I was 17 and then I've been here for the last 23 years Um, So in Canada, in Canada, right. So I do have similar privilege in terms of living in a wealthy country and having access to so much and the autonomy and, you know, the uh, ability to speak openly about this subject. So I do consider myself privileged. But, you know, some experience that I have being part of a fairly traditional culture. I mean, I've, really I moved here a long time ago so I'm not an authority on you know my my own culture and how it's evolved now but I know from my indian family that is still there and friends who are indian who live you know outside of india that the pronatalism is still so very strong and hugely oppressive the child free choice is barely being recognized and there's you know a handful of people who are doing research there and people are starting to you know come out as childfree couples but it's definitely not the norm it, there's just this expectation that you are going to get married you are going to have kids in a way that that expectation may not be as alive here you know people do have the choice to have or not have kids the pronatalism might hide it from them and make it seem like they don't have the choice, but they definitely have the, the right to exercise that choice. It's not to the same degree present and prevalent um, within my own culture. There's a lot of shame. If you don't have kids, you're kind of seen as, you know, an outcast. Something is wrong with you. Your identity as a woman, as a mother is challenged. Your identity as a wife is you know, is seen as lacking. You're, you know, so much a part of your kind of joint extended family with your in-laws that you're not just, again, for the most part, I'm not speaking in generalities, but you're not just getting married to your husband, you really are entering a whole family that has expectations of you. So your life isn't just your own. Okay, that's interesting.
2: So one last subject I want to bring up related to your TEDx talk, let me share the way you closed that out.
0: So let's change our idea of what the ideal family looks like. One is a beautiful number. And let's not be afraid to talk about overpopulation because it is not about taking rights away from people. It is about giving opportunities to women, children, and future generations. And lastly, let's be part of the solution. And choose, from now on, to bring forth no more than one child ourselves. Thank you.
2: A couple of things related to that. First of all, one is a beautiful number. It kind of makes me think of Three Dog Night. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I love that (laughs) different different (laughs) approach to one. But I love that one is a beautiful number. Certainly great that you talked about giving opportunities to women, children, and future generations. But I think what I really want to spend a minute on is that there are so many people who are just so afraid that you're trying to tell them how many children they can have. I have found it extremely difficult to just recommend. And yet, I think it's fair to say that's what you did. You boldly went out there and basically said, I recommend one-child families.
0: I do, but let me tell you that I have my neighbors having her second child, and I was like, congratulations! And my husband's under his breath going, what are you doing that for, Alexandra? They're having another kid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, congratulations, what do you do? And fawning, and so (laughs) I do recommend one-child family, yes, but I can notice in my personal life just because of the pronatalism that Nandif has talked about and Is that it is difficult on a personal level. So if they already have a child and they want a second one, sometimes what I'll ask is Do you want a second one because you want to have the opposite sex of what you have now? You want a boy and a girl? And sometimes I also ask people if they've had three and it's girl, girl, if they had the third because they wanted a boy or boy, boy, and they wanted a girl. And it's so interesting because what Carter Dillard from Having Kids Soon to be Fair Start, he asked the question, why do we keep thinking about what parents want? Mm-hmm. I want a girl. I want a boy. I want three. I want a big, happy family. And not think about these children and the world they're going to be growing up in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's basically what our culture leads with, yeah. is what the parents want.
1: yeah.
2: So you got a good round of applause. So I'm assuming they didn't pick you up off the stage and march you up the hill and uh, nail you to a cross or anything. No. Was everybody pretty comfortable and you weren't shunned from the auditorium after that?
0: No. And, you know, I'm very much a people pleaser and... So I want people to like me. There's no <laughs> doubt. I feel like I phrase that talk. This It just proves you can talk about human population. You just have to do it in a, in a certain way and make sure they're autonomous. When I spoke at San Diego State University, my mom was also on the same Zoom talk that Nandita was on. And my mother said, I was just so happy that you told that story about, basically, I said that if someone asked me, does this mean I shouldn't have a lot of kids. I really want a lot of kids. I would say, no, you, if you want a lot of kids, you really want a lot of kids, go ahead. I'm not telling you how many kids to have. So I think it's really important that we let people make the decision, but explain to them that if you love your children, that one way you can show love for future generations is to not overburden them with what you want, which is a happy family or two kids, Hmm. a boy and a girl or whatever you want and really put into the equation what your kids are going to be experiencing. Right. So I think autonomy and and studies have shown that if you let people make the decision themselves and even think that they came to the decision themselves, they're more apt to come to the decision that you are pointing out, (laughs) basically. Yeah. So going with that philosophy. Yeah.
1: I am kind of grappling with the messaging and, you know, what's the best bold solution to bring forward and I loved Chris Tucker's interview we did recently, where he talked about, you know, bringing down the fertility from 2.5 global to 1.5 by 2030. And that number, 1.5 by 2030, really stuck. Yeah. And it's, it's wonderful to be thinking in those terms. but. The one-child messaging, I know, you know, we've kind of received feedback about, you know, it brings back people to China's one-child policy immediately. That's what Mm. people think. But Hmm. have you kind of received feedback on the limitations of messaging like that?
0: I've gotten the feeling that people think I'm too direct, with the word overpopulation and the way I talk, I'm direct in in that way, but I don't say, maybe I, did I say at the end, I said those of us who haven't had kids yet, please consider, I mean, I thought I put it in a really soft way, but what my main point is, let's look at the benefits Mm -hmm. of having a one child family because we don't talk about that. And if people really, if you get them talking about the benefits They'll see that there's more time for themselves, less money spent on kids, better relationship with their spouse because they're less stressed, so many less pressures. Hmm. Just a myriad of wonderful things that happen both personally within the family structure, within the community And then you can keep going out, and it still goes. The only people who don't want it are the big corporations and the capitalists. Right. And I I guess governments, because they need workers. They want workers. And those are, I guess, politicians who still are under this old paradigm that the more workers we have, the more powerful our country is. So we'll get on that list that says we're the number one country. Yeah. Which doesn't measure other important values at all of their citizens.
1: Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're speaking about the benefits because I think given the proclivity for people towards self-interest and what's good for them because a lot of people don't respond to scarcity crisis and, you know, climate change and universality of having a good life. But if we Because they're so stressed
0: in their own life. I
1: mean, people right. are really
0: stressed. I'm
1: I'm amazed
0: that they could handle three kids in a full, <laughs> these women I mean, I've talked with them because I'm a health coach and they, they are struggling right. to be everything. And what falls to the wayside? Their own health and well-being yeah. generally. So I, I understand why um, they might not be able to think about climate change because they're too busy about thinking about how to get the kids to school and to get their work done. And so, yes, the self-interest thing is, is a really good way to look at it.
1: Yeah, and, and highlighting the benefits is, is really the way to go you know, one of the more, I think, effective ways to go to reach to appeal to people's, you know, own interests.
0: And also never, I really feel that we should never penalize anyone for having more children. We should just continue to incentivize just really so much emphasis on the positives. The government should be emphasizing the financial incentives to those who don't instead Mm -hmm. of penalizing those who do. Right. Because that brings back the uh, China and India and such, and days of forced sterilization. So it's all about just spreading the love about one child and smaller <laughs> families and all that great stuff and making it cool, making it acceptable.
1: So, Alexandra, among the many different types of activism that you're involved in, you know, sustainable population being one of them, you're a gay rights activist, animal rights activist, a lot of the things that I overlap in interests around. And I would love to hear more about your journey into animal protection. What got you started? Uh, when I was 14, I actually
0: became a vegetarian because I read a book called Diet for a Small Planet, mm-hmm. which talked about, and it was an environmental way of looking at vegetarianism. Vegetarian meaning no eating meat. And then a few years later for a book report, I did read a book called Animal Liberation, which was about the ethics of not exploiting animals. So. That's when I stopped buying like shampoo, and I didn't wear makeup then, but that kind of thing, I became aware of the ethical. Uh, so I stopped wearing animals, and in my early acting contracts when I was in the early 80s, they stipulated that no makeup that was put on me could be tested on animals. <laughs> that was hard to find, but every, everybody, all the makeup artists were happy to do it. I just had to help them find the makeup, and so I never had a project, in all the 100 projects that I've done, somebody say no, we're not going to people want to do the right thing they just sometimes don't know how so they were always excited it was really interesting and then finally 33 years later i gave up dairy mm. and it was the second the third best thing i've ever done in my life uh the first one was um me stopping being bulimic which was a challenge i had for 12 years the second one was marrying my husband and the third one was becoming vegan all those three things just contributed to my happiness so much And I changed as a person. You wouldn't think going from vegan to vegetarian and after, you know, not wearing animals for... I stopped wearing animals in my 20s, so no wool, leather, or silk, that I would have such a change by just giving up dairy, but I really did.
1: Incredible. Uh, I
0: changed the way I looked at the world by becoming fully vegan. Yeah. Um, You know, finally, I was completely aligned with my values. And uh, yeah, and so in my late 40s, I decided that I was going to just focus on helping animals and people, and it was going to be population
1: and animal rights. And there's such a strong correlation between animal suffering and our growing numbers, right? We are the biggest threat to animals. Do you try to bring this up in animal rights communities? Uh, what kind of feedback do you get if you talk about overpopulation in animal advocacy movements?
0: I have spoken twice at the Animal Rights Conference, given a presentation, helped put together a panel on human overpopulation and the link to the environment mm-hmm. and the, therefore animal habitat and such. But I don't, I don't bring it up with my friends on a day-to-day basis most of my friends don't have kids, actually. So I'm surrounded by less conventional people anyway. Mm -hmm. But it is an important issue that the environmental organizations would refuse and still refuse to deal with. Animal rights organizations are by nature more radical, so less fearsome, fearful. They're less fearful of dealing with issues that people get defensive about Mm -hmm. people definitely get defensive. If you say I'm a vegan, you don't have to even, I don't tell people to be vegan. It's the same thing as having one kid. I'm not going to tell you to be vegan. You've got to come to that. Took me 33 years to go from being a vegetarian. Why would I judge you? No, but, um, people always do get not always, but a lot of people do immediately feel like you're judging them just by your own
1: actions, right?
0: This following. Yes. Yeah. But you know, when I drove electric cars uh, before I started driving electric cars in 1990, same thing. People always thought that I was going to be mad at them for driving in an SUV. I'm like, I'm just trying to clean my side of the street. I'm just trying to live my value. I, I don't have time to tell you what to do. It's too much, right? i living in alignment with your own values every day is the hardest
1: thing to do. Absolutely. So I'm not judging you. (laughs) And is it difficult for you to live in alignment with your own values, with your career? Do you ever have to kind of compromise?
2: I was going to say eat steak when craft services (laughs) serves it up.
1: (laughs) I've had to, and
0: it has been actually with animals, I've been able to really navigate it well. Um, You know, I was in Baywatch, put me in a scene at Marineland. And I asked them to please write me out because mm. I didn't want to support that place. And they did. And a lot of it's because they knew already in my contract, it said that I didn't want things to sign. It. So they knew I wasn't just being a diva. And I had a movie where they asked me to ride a horse and I don't ride horses because I don't Believe that animals, any animal, should be used for my own pleasure or transportation, Mm. and so I talked to the director before the movie started, and I I was the lead, so I had some sway. And I said, you know, I didn't tell him that I didn't want to ride horses. I said, how are you going to shoot this stampede, horse stampede scene? Isn't it going to be really hard? Is there a way to do it that where we don't have to? do this. And of course, then we used a motorcycle. And afterwards he said, oh my God, it was so great that you escaped on a motorcycle rather than a horse because it was, (laughs) I mean, it was so not realistic anyway. So a lot of times it works out for the best when you talk about your own values. But I am, Nandita, you know, because I wrote to you yesterday in a moral quandary um, about pronatalism. I haven't ever spoken up about that in terms Mm of my Um, And I have a a movie offer that I said yes to because I was so excited about it because I love the script and it's very progressive, LGBTQ, lots of, you know, not just white people, and it's funny. And now, because I'm taking your class, not (laughs) a. I, re- I realized, I don't know why I didn't notice it when I read the script. It is the most pronatal story, practically, that you can get. And I need to figure out what I'm going to do. I haven't signed a contract, so I need oh. to talk to the director. And I need to talk to the director, I, I think, and tell him why, because I need to... Even, and I have to say that it's much easier for me to say it when it's about animals. Right. But when it's like, I really believe that we can't promote having twins and surrogacy and all that. And so I can't be in this movie. Oh my God, it makes me so nervous. I haven't, I couldn't sleep last night oh my because I'm so worried about talking to the director. So, so a, re-
2: a rewrite's not going to cut it.
0: <laughs> no, actually a rewrite isn't going to cut it. So and I need to remember that, you know, I have to live my values. And I, I know it's going to be upsetting for him. And uh, I've worked with him four times. No, this will be my fourth time. So, you know, and I have to be honest. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't notice it before when I read the script. But the truth <laughs> is, I have so many values coming at me. I was like, whoa, this is so great. It's got <laughs> gay couples and they're marrying. And <laughs> I, I forgot all about the... Uh, baby thing. I don't know what I'm going to do. And if I do it, I, it'll have to just cop to being a, a human being that, you know, there's so many things to weigh Yeah, that this might not be the only thing. I mean, it's a wonderfully progressive script in terms of LGBTQ. And so there's so much good, but So I think I'm just going to have a conversation with him and see. But I I think if it was an animal thing, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't be in it. But I also would have said it right off because it would have boing out at me. Um, But I'm just so I'm not used to looking at pronatalism until, well, uh, I started talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) So the messaging, I just, yeah, I don't usually, I'm not usually in um, movies where, especially now because I'm 57, where, I'm involved with, you know, baby things. I, I did do a TV movie a long time ago that was about four different couples uh, having babies. It was called Mixed Blessings, and um, we shot it in Canada. <laughs> and uh, I took it because my character adopted, and that was the whole thing is that I thought. But the rest of the movie was about the joys of baby-making. Uh, not? And that wasn't actually true, but there was a strong baby-making message. Yeah. But I thought, well, I'm, this is good, but now I've, I've changed my priorities and I don't know if it's that I think it's, and this script is of course different, so it's not easy. It's
1: nuanced, everything. I'm just so incredibly inspired though, how dedicated you are to consistently trying as best as you can to align your work with your values, which is not easy to do. And I really admire you for your dedication on the subject. And I just want to say, you know, a lot of my work on pronatalism was inspired by Laura Carroll, whose book we are currently reading in my course, The Baby Matrix. So a big thanks to her for waking me up to that.
0: And I've, I read that book because it's assigned in our class. too. So <laughs> I, do. I uh, Although we'll be talking about it because there are some things I recognize in myself about that she goes farther than I, Mm -hmm. actually, in some some areas. So
1: I'm going to test you on it tomorrow. It's it's tomorrow night, our class. So you better be ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm done. I finished it. (laughs) Great.
2: Well, not to be outdone in uh, praise for you, Alexandra, you're like my Jane Fonda. You've only been arrested, I think, five Mm -hmm. times so far. For, uh, no,
0: no, I've been arrested over 20 times. Oh, over
2: 20 times. Oh. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I think maybe more than Jane Fonda, but I'm not sure. But she's she's amazing. So I don't I I'm not going to compete with her cuz she's so amazing. I look up to her also.
2: But uh, thank you for standing up for what you believe. Real quickly, can we just get the story on your podcast? You do a podcast called Switch for Good?
0: Oh, thank you. Yes, Switch for Good. It's Switch and the digit for Good, and it's a podcast about the benefits of a plant-based lifestyle. And uh, we've been going for um, we have oh, um, 140 episodes. So we're branching out. It's not just about a plant-based lifestyle, but a healthy lifestyle. Um, so we we do branch out. But yes, thank you so much, Dave. You can find it on any podcast platform.
2: That's great, and we'll put links in the show notes to help people find all these as well. Wow. Great conversation. Thanks. As we wrap up, Nandada, should we shed a little light on that course that you and Alexandra talked about?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dave, for that opportunity. This course is part of a much longer project that I undertook as part of my graduate degree thesis that I've been delving into for the last couple of years in humane education, working and researching uh, the intimate links between pronatalism, anthropocentrism, and overpopulation, and their impacts on humans, animals, as well as the environment. And my sense from both, uh, you know, personal experience and having delved so deeply into pronatalism was that overpopulation is considered a huge taboo. And I have a sense that part of that is that having children is considered to be a given. And therefore, any discussion about overpopulation is seen as an impingement on that choice. So my goal, really, from talking about the ties between pronatalism and overpopulation is just to shine light on how pervasive these social pressures around having kids are. And to a large degree, they've just come to be seen as part of our identity. And if we can decouple parenthood from our identity and normalize the conversation that parenthood is a choice rather than a given, I feel that the conversation around making smaller family choices becomes less charged.
0: Hmm.
2: Makes sense. And this is a brand new graduate level college course, not actually available yet, but Alexandra is taking it as part of a a test run or a pilot. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, I'm just uh, doing final tweaks on the course. I've got a small number of people taking it with me as a pilot course, but starting January 2022, it will be offered as a graduate course through Antioch University in partnership with the Institute for Humane Education. And it'll be the first course of its kind that's talking about the link between overpopulation, pronatalism, how the decision to have biological children is not as personal as it seems that there are far-reaching impacts of that choice on other human beings, on the animals, as well as the environment, and how we can start to include the bigger picture, which is the state of our planet, in our minds while we're making that, you know, very important decision. So I'm so excited about this course, and I'm hoping that a lot of people will you know, start to see things differently with regards to overpopulation and, and having kids.
2: Well, thanks for doing that work. It's just stunning that uh, you have to work so hard to get our minds wrapped around this subject, but appreciate that hard work. Thank you. We do try to close each episode with an inspirational quote, and I've got a very appropriate one today. I think it's from Seth Rogen, the well-known actor and filmmaker. And, uh, he said this recently on the Howard Stern radio show. So rather than one of us reading it, let's just hear Seth Rogen from that show. There's enough kids out there. who needs Oh, working? there's so many we need more. We need more people who looks at the planet right now and thinks, you know, what we need more people.
1: So nice to see someone in that position of influence taking a stand on this very important topic and also normalizing the child-free choice.
2: It's amazing that it gets so much attention. It just shouldn't be that big of an event when someone of note says, hey, we chose child-free and I'm uh, pretty darn happy with that decision.
1: Hey, exactly.
2: Yeah, simple as that. Well, we'll include a link in the show notes to that moment where Seth Rogen and Howard Stern talk about why Seth is glad to be child-free. And, of course, we'll include links to everything that we talked about with Alexandra as well. That's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Thanks again, Nandita, for that very important work that you and the staff of World Population Balance are doing. Visit worldpopulationbalance.org to learn more about how we can solve world overpopulation. While you're at the website, you can sign the Sustainable Population Pledge, listen to our podcasts, get on our email list, and importantly, become a supporting member. Make a donation to support this work.
1: Thank you, Dave, also for your amazing partnership in this work. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Write to us. We love hearing from you. And we often share your thoughts on the podcast. Our email is podcast at worldpopulationbalance.org. Recommend this episode or podcast to friends, family, colleagues, journalists, and elected representatives. And click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajaj, reminding you that we can all make a dent in this movement by choosing small impact families, whatever family means to you.